This is our text for today. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I bring him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. You may be seated. Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Johnny Burns. I get to serve as the youth pastor around here. And so it's always fun for me to be in a, what I grew up calling a big church church. Uh, Real church, whatever you guys want to call it, this is uh, just an absolute joy for me to be here. Um, you guys are thankful for a church that is committed to clinging to the cross above all else. Ugh, I, I just, it, it's why I'm here. Um, it's, it's why I love this place. It's why I'm committed to helping the youth uh, build a foundation where they can cling to the cross as much as we can. Uh, well, this morning, we're, we're, we're talking about this word, Glory. Uh, I, how many of you guys use this phrase? I use it. Uh, oh, isn't this glorious? You guys use that phrase? Uh, I, I think I use it most probably when I'm sitting in a jacuzzi, like maybe drinking an ice cold water, uh, <laughs> right? But I, it, 
maybe at an angel game, right? If you guys remember, it feels like 40 years ago, but the angels won the World Series. Dodger fans, you probably know what this feels like more than we do, right? But, but this is glory. You guys watched the San Diego State game yesterday? Woo! Releases the ball with .6 seconds left, down by one, drains it, wins it, sends them to the championship. You want to know what comes from that? Glory. Oh, everyone mobs the court, mobs the guy who made the shot. That's glory. Hawaii? Oh, come on, sitting on a beach in Hawaii looking at a sunset? I know I have said, this is glorious. Right? And I know for some of you guys who have had a kid, Brooke and I are, let me use my words carefully, anticipating, not expecting, anticipating but, but I think seeing a newborn baby, it's this incredible expression of God's power, his love, his creativity. And so it makes you think, you have this all-glorifying God, a holy God, a powerful God, a loving God. What could be the greatest expression of his love and his power and his glory? Let me show you. easy to miss. Uh, Sharia said she was reading the text. She was reading the first 16 of 42 verses. We're actually walking through the entire chapter. But this is what John has been building to the entire time, is the fullest expression of God's glory and his power and his love. It happens right here. And I'm thankful we're at a church where we commit a week, this week, to thinking about, dwelling on, growing in our gratitude, our dependence on this moment in history. Let me just pray for us. (sighs) Father, my, my prayer is that this morning we would see with more clarity, we would trust with more dependence and we would experience with more power the glory and the love of your son, of what happened on that day on the cross where you fully expressed your glory and your power and your love. That's my prayer, Father. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read through the text, 42 verses, guys. So this is a long, long text. We're not going to be able to walk through all of it. Uh, So I would highly recommend if you guys are not in a life group, there's a lot of details in this text that are really fun to unpack. So uh, talk to Stephen if you guys want to get connected to a life group. It's the best place to to hang and unpack all that the pastors miss because let's be real, Todd misses stuff every Sunday. So that's the best spot to unpack everything. But, But let me read. She just read the first 16 verses. Uh, So let me just finish this. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the, last, or since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Do you guys miss it? You want me to reread it? <sighs> Whew, I need a water. Man, this is all John has been pointing to in the whole book. All three years of Jesus' ministry, all of his teachings, all of the promises that he's given to the disciples, it's all been pointing to this fullest expression of God's love, his power, and his glory. It happens at the cross. And I think John's really trying to get us to see three different things in this text. We're not going to be able to cover all of it. But I really think he's trying to get us to understand that the first part is you can actually see the glory. 
it's a complicated story, especially if you're living in that time. Super complicated, but the glory is there. So let's just start with the story. John spends more time on his conversation with Pilate, Jesus and Pilate, than any of the Synoptic Gospels. And so you have to ask yourself, why? Right, as we grow in first-handers, these are the kinds of questions that we gotta ask. He spends so much time, so we ask, why? And I think John's trying to highlight how complicated and especially how unjust this process was where Jesus is sent to the cross. And at the core of it is Pilate has this inward battle. You saw this last week with Todd, uh, where Jesus is having this conversation with Pilate. He's talking about a spiritual kingdom, and he ends with, what is truth? It starts there, and you're going to see Pilate's heart only grow more heavy, more weary, more confused. But he's got this inward battle, and here's where you see it in the text. It starts here, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. So why did he flog him? He's already started to, to weigh the options of what he has to do with Jesus. And, and you can already see in his heart, he doesn't want to have to do this. He's already having these conversations behind the doors with Jesus. And, and I think he sends him to the flogging so that he can have the closest experience of pain and of death that there is behind the crucifixion. And so he sends him to flogging, I think, in hopes that he wouldn't have to send him to be crucified. And so Jesus gets whipped, his chest, his stomach, his back, his flesh ripped apart. Right? 40 numbers of whips is, the, is, is what was considered to, to be enough to be lethal. So they whipped him 39 times. And so you have Jesus who's bloodied, beaten, and just on the brink of death. And so he brings him out. He says, see, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I, have, I find no guilt in him. He brings him out. He says, guys, isn't this enough? What has this man done? He's been nothing but respectful to me. We've had a good conversation. Isn't this enough? And I think to highlight how unjust and how complicated this process is, you just see, right, Sharia read this text, you see the heart of the crowd. And they've got one thing on their mind and one thing on their mind only. Nothing is enough until this man is dead. And so you have Jesus, who has been whipped 39 times, is brought out by Pilate, and these I don't know if it's the Jewish priests, but some people in the crowd, as if it hasn't been enough, come up and smack him. A man who's been whipped, who's bloodied, who's probably barely standing, and they smack him. And they yell and continue to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And then it grows with Pilate, because he's like, I don't want to do this, you guys crucify him. And they throw it right back on him and say, we can't, but he ought to die because he's made himself equal to God. He's declared to be the son of God. And that, if you're not God, is blasphemy. And so they are just 
hyper-focused on this. But when Pilate hears this, right, Jesus just reveals, I'm a king in this last text. I'm a king, but I'm not a king of this world. I have a spiritual kingdom. And then he learns, oh, he's here because he's, he's claimed to be the son of God. You can imagine being Pilate, where you have this angry crowd who's absolutely going to go after you, your, reputa- your reputation, your job, if you do not crucify him. But you have this one man who's claiming some pretty lofty things, and your war is raging inside your heart. And so he turns to Jesus. He says, don't you know, I have authority. I could release you. Or I could crucify you. All you need to do is just take back that one statement. That's the only reason you're here, Jesus. They'll probably let you off the hook if you take that back. But Jesus, faithful, the lamb continues to walk forward. And you see this in Pilate. He sought to release him, but the Jews the weight of their crying, it ends up overwhelming, and Pilate ends up caving and unjustly in a complicated process, sending him to be crucified. And then you have this question of who's actually in control here? And this is what I love about this church. One of, our, uh, one of, one of the things we're passionate about is we, we want to embrace inevitable tensions. And you see this tension in this text. You see Pilate looking at Jesus, who's in this lofty position, and he says, don't you know that I have authority? I could release you. I have the authority to go crucify you. And I love Jesus' response. He says, yeah, you, you know what? You do have this authority. But the only reason you actually have this authority is because I granted it to you. And so who's actually in charge here? The answer is, Yes, <laughs> both. <laughs> but I love this peek behind the curtain. Up front, you have this really complicated, unjust process where, yes, Pilate's going to deliver him, and Jesus knows that. But Jesus says, but oh, you're here because I've actually granted you to be here. And so even in the, the unjust process of Jesus being sent to the cross, you actually get this peek behind the curtain where God says, I'm actually in control. And likewise, you have this question of who's actually at fault here? It's a really hard question. There's a lot of people involved, right? But I think Jesus answers it like this. He he says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And, And I think most directly, the one who delivered him over was Judas. But Judas delivers him to these chief priests and the scribes, and then they take him to Pilate. And so you have, and then Pilate doesn't give in to Jesus. He actually follows the crowd. So you have this convoluted process of who is actually at fault. But I think a piece of this glory is you see Jesus is willingly walking, continually moving forward, because he knows the glory and the love and the power that's about to be expressed. And this just isn't the expression of what glory ought to look like. It's not in our life. 
I doubt any of you guys use the phrase, if you use the phrase, wow, isn't this glorious? Where like you just burnt your pizza in your oven. Wow. <laughs> right? We, don't use, we use that for things that have been incredible, amazing, jaw-dropping. And just look at the story. I, I think if you're living in that time or maybe even if you're just reading about the story for the first time, think about the glory that Jesus has been revealing. Check it out. One of the first things he did was he turned water into wine. That's really cool. That's incredible. And that just set this trajectory of the incredibly powerful glory that he can express at any time. Then he walked on water. You guys ever tried that? Pretty hard. Walks on water, calls Peter out. He walks on water. Feeds 5,000 people from just some bread and some fish from a kid. Over 5,000 people. And then he does it again. (laughs) Then he raises somebody from the dead. And then he shows his divinity. He shows the nature of God. He reveals a little bit of it at the transfiguration. And so you see this thing building and you're like, oh, this next expression, this final expression of glory and love and power, oh, it's going to be sweet. It's going to be awe-inspiring. It's going to capture people's attention. People are going to flock to him. But when you read this story, I think the disciples were asking this question when it was happening. I think if this story is new to us, I think we're asking this question is, where in the world is the glory in this story? I didn't mean to rhyme. But where is the glory in this? Because it looks like you're losing. And the glory is here. The glory is in his death. You know, you've seen a couple of these conversations with Jesus and the disciples in the past, even in the Last Supper. I'm going to die. I'm going to give up my life. But the glory is in his death. The center of our faith happens at the crucifixion. And John's going to express where this glory can actually be seen, because I think it's, you can see it, but he's going to express it in two ways. The first one is this, is the perfect Passover lamb. Now, I love this. Uh, If you've read the Old Testament, you've heard of this incredible story uh, of how the Israelites were freed from slavery, right? God sends the 10 plagues, and this last plague, he's going to kill the firstborn, And God gives his people one command. He says, go find an unblemished, spotless, perfect what? Lamb. Sacrifice it and put the blood of it on your doorpost and I will pass over you. Don't you love how creative God is? That was thousands of years before this. And because you get another picture of how perfect his timing is, John's actually going to describe 
mainly by telling us what time of the year it is, that Jesus is actually the perfect, ultimate Passover lamb. You saw it in last week's text, the super ironic statement that these guys make, right? They're outside, it's Passover. They don't want to enter in because they don't want to be what? Defiled. (laughs) I can't enter in with that guy. If I enter in with that guy, I'm going to be defiled. And the reason they did did that, so they could participate of the Passover meal. You got to love the irony. And in John chapter 19, he, he three different times talks about what day it was, the day of the Passover. And I love it. He says this, Pilate, right? Whether knowingly or unknowingly, whatever he was believing at that time, he sends Jesus out and he says, declare, he declares, behold your king. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. And I love it. In one of these texts, you guys know what they used during the Exodus to put the blood on the, uh, on the post? It's a, it's a specific type of branch. What is it? Hyssop. Did you guys see this word in this text? Yeah, when Jesus is on the cross, uh, they actually use a hyssop branch to give him the sour wine. Just another connection to Jesus being the perfect Passover lamb or it's going to be his blood that covers us. And the second part is he uses this one word in Greek, three words in English. He says, it is finished. I took eight semesters of Greek in undergrad and grad school, and I am proud to say I remember one word, and it's this word. (laughs) Uh, The word that he uses is tetelestai. And I love this word, because it's in the perfect tense, which means He's declaring, I have just completed what I've needed to complete, and the results of this action will continue forever. Who thought grammar could ever be cool? That's when I fell in love with it. But he declares, it is finished. When Jesus had received the sour wine, potentially even a symbol of Jesus taking on the wrath of God on our behalf. He says, it is finished. So Jesus is saying, Father, all that I have done, all that we have declared for my life to accomplish, and I think here he's including his death, he's including uh, taking on the wrath of God, he says, it's done. I've accomplished all that I've set out to do. And so John wants us to know, when you're reading this, even if you were witnessing this, you can see the glory of God. Now, it's not obvious because last week we said it's a spiritual kingdom. So it's a glory in in which if you don't have a spiritual set of lens that you're looking at life through, you will miss the glory. And so if you, if you can see it, the reality is you can also miss it. This is why John writes the book. <laughs> this is John's experience. Think about who John is. John was potentially Jesus' best friend on planet Earth. 
And guess what happened during the time of the crucifixion? He missed it. He saw it. He witnessed it. But because he couldn't actually understand what Jesus was accomplishing by dying, he actually misses the glory. And I'm convinced if someone like John, who walked this earth at least for a few years with him, was his best friend, Jesus entrusts his own mother to the guy, that's when you know they're close. If he can miss it, I think the reality is it could be easy for us to miss it too. You know, Todd uses this phrase of easy believism. Uh, He talked a lot about truth last week. But this is it. It all depends on the truth, the reliability, and the glory of what happened on the cross. It's what we stake our joy, our hope, and our confidence in is what Jesus said he accomplished that he actually accomplished it. And so I think this is what John, the first thing that he's trying to get us to see is witnessing it, reading about it, hearing it, you can actually see the glory of God and it's in his death. And the second piece is this, what he's revealed, what you saw in terms of his glory, it can actually be trusted. And I love this. As I was walking through all 42 verses, thank you, Todd, uh, here's what I noticed. John uses seven fulfilled prophecies in chapter 19 alone. Check these out. Here's where it was fulfilled. Here's where it's prophesied. And again, right, being being this first-hander, you ask, why use so many prophecies during the crucifixion? I think two primary reasons. One is, I think God in his infinite wisdom understood this expression of his glory was going to be really hard for us to see and to trust. Because it doesn't actually look like it's victorious. And so by giving us prophecies, mainly two texts here, right? Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. But these guys... The irony here is the guys who crucified him were more familiar with these texts than anyone else. The disciples had probably walked through Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 with Jesus at some point during his ministry. And they missed it. So where's the glory? Where's the glory in giving us prophecies? And I think it's this. I think the glory is God has always, from the beginning, intended for this crucifixion to be this fullest expression of glory and love. This is not an accident. This is not God adjusting on the fly. It's not plan B. This has always been the plan. And so he uses seven prophecies because John's like, guys, I read these and I missed it, but the glory is there. The glory is there for you not to just see it, but to actually uh, stoke your life on it. 
everything you are to trust it with your salvation, your eternal life, you can trust it. And beyond this, I mean, Genesis 3.15, guys, it's from the very beginning, right? God promises, I'm going to send one or you bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And this crushing, this victory, it happens through the death of Jesus. So the reality is if, if he's presenting something that you can trust, right, you see these in scripture, I think the, reali the reality is you're actually going to miss it sometimes. And talk about an experience that I think a lot of us have in the church. Where we've seen it, we've heard it, we've read about it. This is probably your, I don't know, X amount of, I don't want to call you old, X amount of uh, Easter's and Good Friday's and Monday Thursday's and Palm Sunday's that you've experienced. But the reality that John's trying to get us to understand is there were a bunch of people familiar with even Scripture who missed it. And so we must devote ourselves to understanding what the actual glory that's being presented is, and it's in his death. And I think the entire purpose of this, the entire purpose of the crucifixion is two things, so that God would be glorified and so that we could experience salvation. And you see John so desperately calling this out, and he uses this phrase, so that you may believe. And John actually uses this a few times during his book. But guys, this is John's experience. He misses it. He realizes, I actually didn't trust this as God intended me to trust it. But then, the period between him experiencing the crucifixion, seeing it, and writing this book, this transformation happens where he experiences the power and the love of the crucifixion. And he uses this. He says, he who saw it, a.k.a. himself, I was there. My testimony is true, and I'm telling you the truth for one reason, that you would believe, that you would have faith in this man. That's my desire. And if you have faith in this man, the glory is this, that sinners would be made righteous. This is what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. The fullness of his glory, the fullest expression of his love is this. I am going to accomplish through the crucifixion the ability to make you righteous on account of my son's sacrifice. Paul says this. He says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of only on behalf of the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice can we be made clean and declared righteous in the eyes of God. But the reality is the purpose of this is so that you can experience the crucifixion. But the reality is it can be familiar without ever being experienced. It's my greatest fear. For anyone who grew up in the church, for anyone who, who claims this, 
My, my one question to myself all the time is, am I fully clinging to Jesus and his death? And that's why we're preaching today. We want to. It's my one hope is we walk out seeing more clearly, trusting more deeply, and experiencing more fully the crucifixion. That's my only hope. I think it's John's hope. You know, I'm going to invite my wife up. And uh, it's fun being married. One of the greatest joys that I've seen in my wife is seeing from the get-go how open she was about her life, about her sin. And it dawned on me pretty quickly, the primary reason she's so confident is because of her confidence in Jesus. And so I thought it'd be really fun, right? I'm, I'm preaching, it'd be really fun to hear from my wife just a little bit about this story um, of how you came to, to treasure Jesus. Um, hi, sweetie. Hi. <laughs> uh, so, oh, I put, I put her name up here. Uh, so this is my wife. Uh, we've been married for... Almost four years in August. Almost four years. Yeah. You still like me? I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> most of the time. You know, we're talking about uh, seeing the glory of God on the cross, trusting it, and experiencing it. Has this always been your life? Has this always been your experience? Um, you know, I thought so. I thought mm. that I knew God for about 20 years of my life, and looking back, I didn't. I was like John, and I missed it. Um, mm. I grew up in the church went to a Christian school, went to a Catholic high school, and went there for soccer. But um, it, it was something where I felt like I had a faith and I knew God. Mm. And then when I got into college, I recognized that I didn't know him at all. Huh. And so what, what was it? What, what was the breaking point where you realized, my life actually doesn't reveal that I've actually seen and, and tasted of the glory of God? What, what was that in your life? What was the breaking point? Yeah, um, you know, when I was in high school, I was a sophomore, and I, I was on the varsity soccer team, and that was kind of all I cared about was being an athlete, being um, seen as this, like, big wig as a soccer player and all of this, and, um, you know, I started getting picked on by my teammates, and the seniors were not happy with me because I was starting, and I was, I was playing, and um, it was something that started to get to me. And so they were start, starting to make fun of my body. And mm. so I started dieting and developed a severe eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, I was anorexic and later became bulimic, and um, which just kind of spiraled out of control. And it turned into severe depression and anxiety. And I got to a breaking point where I was suicidal and didn't want to live anymore. Mm. And so the, you, you're starting to see these, these sins in your life Good thing we're only talking about her sin and not mine. This is easy. <laughs> but you, you really start to see the reality of this sin. And what was it that made you realize, I'm not actually experiencing the crucifixion in the way that God has intended it? Yeah. Um, I think because of everything that I had gone through, I, I knew God. I knew he mm. was there, but I was extremely angry. Um, and... A lot of you know me now, but I used to swear like a sailor, and <laughs> so I don't swear as much anymore. We won't I say, say who you got much. that from. 
Yeah. <laughs> My parents aren't here yet. <laughs> They're um, coming second service. <laughs> so first service, you get something that second service won't get. <laughs> but I was just so angry. And I remember I remember driving out to Mission Bay Home. My mom would drive with me and I would just take it out on her. I would take it out on my dad. I would take it out on my brother. And I was just mm. had this like hatred in my heart um, towards God, towards my family, just towards everybody and, mm. and mainly myself. Yeah. Um, and when I got to college, I was on the track team in my freshman year. Um, I was in recovery from my eating disorder and, and the doctors told me that I would never recover. Um, and I was still, still processing. Mm. Um, and I turned to drugs and alcohol and boys. And mm. it was something where I had this hole in my heart and I thought that I knew God, but I wasn't filling my life with his glory and mm. with my relationship with him. I was filling it with everything yeah. from track to boys to, to alcohol, whatever it yeah. was, you know, I was trying to stuff down and numb those emotions to mm. where I didn't see God until I remember I was with my teammates at a party at Chapman and it was literally pouring rain outside and I was walking outside and I was just standing there. It's 5 a.m. Been <laughs> up all night. <laughs> Um, very inebriated. And I just remember coming to a breaking point of like, Lord, I am so sad. I am so broken. I'm so angry and I don't want to live like this anymore. Mm. And I basically prayed. I'm like, if you get me out of this situation, I'm, I want my life to be yours. Wow. And so you make this decision. <laughs> I think you <clears throat> potentially for the first time in your life, see his glory, see the crucifixion in a new way. You come to Jesus, what has been your experience compared to this life that you were living? What's been the experience of the power and the love of Jesus in your life? There's been no greater joy. Mm. And I know that word is used a lot here, but <laughs> I, every day, I mean, I have a tattoo. I know I'm a sinner, but <laughs> I got Can't this tattoo. Perfect. Can't be perfect. <laughs> I got this tattoo um, December 10th. 2013 hmm. was the date that I stopped throwing up and every day I can look at my wrist or have people ask me why I have Roman numerals on my wrist and I get hmm. to share my testimony of I was broken and oh. now I can be dead to my sin and alive hmm. in Christ and that's something that like I want to wear my heart on my sleeve and that's why I have the tattoo but um Every day I wake up knowing I'm a sinner, knowing I'm broken, but yeah. that brings me so much more joy to know that I'm covered by God's grace and I don't have to do anything mm. to be loved by the Lord. Awesome. We live in this fullest expression of his love and glory for this reason, that he can declare sinners like both of us righteous and not just declare us, but also redeem us, sanctify the mistakes forgive the mistakes, no longer hold them against us, and raise us to a new spiritual life of joy in him. It's what we're committed to, uh, and it's, it's what we believe we all can experience. So thank you for sharing, babe. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And here's my last encouragement. This isn't just for Brooke. This isn't just for John. This isn't just for me. God's inviting all of us to take a look at our life, to take a look at our sin and say, Jesus, I believe that through the crucifixion and my faith in that, you can declare me righteous. And so as a community, we're, we're gonna take communion this morning. Uh, I, I'm just gonna invite you guys to, to, to take the, the, the pieces back to your seats 
and we'll all partake together. But this is the hope. That through the blood, through the body, through the faithfulness of Jesus, that we who are sinners can be made righteous in the eyes of God only on account of Jesus. Amen? Amen. You guys can come and grab whenever you want. community, we, uh, we cling to the cross. We believe that God's glory and our joy are as connected as they can be. And the greatest amount of joy is no surprise found in the greatest expression of his glory, which is in the cross. And so may we partake of his body, of his faithfulness, and of his death you take the bread. And as they fed him sour wine on a hyssop branch, may this symbol 
of Jesus' sacrifice as the perfect Passover lamb be the foundation of our hope, our joy, and our confidence. Let's all stand together. Let's sing this together. Jesus, uh, we just look forward to celebrating all week long, Thursday at 6 o'clock, Friday at 5 o'clock, and next Sunday, because Sundays are coming. Uh, but this is, this is what we stake our life on, our joy on, is the hope and the confidence of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. Amen. Have an awesome week, guys.